Good evening. Uh, this is a passage, says Paul, uh, written with anguish and great sorrow in his heart. It's a really difficult text. Uh, it's a difficult part of Romans chapters 9 to 11, which we're, uh, we're carrying on this uh, series in Romans tonight. We looked at chapters 1 to 8 a little while ago, and uh, now we're moving through the second half of this letter. Uh, one guy I listened to in preparation for this reckons uh, this passage has caused some to soar in worship of Jesus and others to walk away from him. It might be new to you, uh, it might be old, but it is crucially important. Throughout history, some have dealt with it uh, by sort of saying uh, chapters 1 to 8, some really great theology, and uh, chapters 12 to 16, some fantastic application, and 9 to 11, uh, just sort of dropped in there for good measure, uh, helpful if that's your kind of thing, um, take it or leave it. Uh, no, it's so important. Um, everything that we hear that is lovely uh, in the first part of Romans rests on the truth of chapter 9, chapters 9 to 11. When chapter 8 says that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. When we read that we're more than conquerors through him, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus that we're set free one day to be raised to live with him forever, that we have a spirit of sonship, we're able to call him Father. And when, we, uh, when it fills uh, our hearts with joy, this bit just comes just before chapter 9 where we begin, verse 38, the last chapter, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you love those verses? Do you love Romans 8? Uh, it rests on the truth of Romans 9. And if Romans 9 doesn't show us God's faithfulness to his promises and to his word, uh, then we have no hope to bank on. And I'll try and show you why. Uh, as much as all that is, is true, it doesn't make this any less uh, emotionally intense. Paul wrote this, he says, through anguish, and uh, I'm sure some of us tonight might feel our emotions rising as we move through it and its themes. Uh, we might wonder why it's even here. And it's here to show us that God's word has not failed. Uh, it's the point that Paul's going to make. God's word has not failed because... Uh, there are some serious issues um, from Paul's perspective uh, right in this um, to, to deal with. Uh, God made promises to Abraham and to the people of Israel throughout Scripture. Uh, summed up, maybe you could say, um, Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three says, You will be my people and I will be your God. Uh, you will be my people and I will be your God. But Paul is watching his fellow Jews those of his own race, he says, reject the Messiah. God's promised anointed one who brings salvation and freedom and he's having to watch his brothers reject Jesus. And there are real issues with God's faithfulness 
to the promises, to the covenant that he made with Israel. Paul, he was uh, very much Jewish, as Jewish as, as anybody. And he uh, grew up in that. He learned the scripture. He learned the promises. He uh, loved those promises. And he had a bit of an, an iffy one when first he heard of Jesus. But he was uh, gloriously realized how God has fulfilled this. He, uh, Jesus appeared to him, and the first thing he does, he gets to Damascus, I think it was, and he starts proclaiming this. He starts preaching it. It clicks for him. And he looks around, and he sees his brothers. And it's, it's, it's like, you know, when the, a train is going along a track, and it's going along, and there's a train behind it that suddenly uh, clips off and goes down another track? Do you know what I mean? And um, it's like Paul has been going down this track, and he's looked behind him, and his brothers, his fellow Jews, are just not on the same track as him. And it's, it's really uh, a big issue for him. How can they reject Jesus? And he says that I wish I myself, in verse 3 I think it is, I, I wish I were myself cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. But he can't do anything about it. And so has God's word failed? His people from whom Christ's ancestry is traced have rejected him, some of them. Has God failed to keep his promises to the Jews? And this is so important for us as well, because, as I said at the beginning, if God can't fulfill the old covenant, then how can we trust him for the new covenant? How can we, uh, if, he can't, if he can't do that, how can he be faithful to the promises he makes, for example, in Romans 8? But Paul says, absolutely not. God's word has not failed. God has always been true to his promises. He's utterly and eternally faithful and steadfast. Uh, I wonder if you've ever been walking, uh, maybe somewhere nice, uh, the lakes or something like that, and you've had your map and you've been following your map and it seems to all be going well, you know where you're going to, you're following along, you seem to be on this path or whatever it is, going to go down there. Um, or maybe you just, I don't know, going to your mate's house or something and you're following Google Maps. And, and suddenly you get to something in the road that makes you realise, actually, I'm, I'm not where I thought I was on the map. And it's a pretty uh, bad realisation that hits you. And there's two things that can have happened. Either the map is wrong and, uh, and you're actually going in the right direction. Or uh, you've made an error and you've misread the map. And so what do you do in that circumstance? Uh, probably you go back to the beginning and you start to retrace your steps along the map and try and work out what's actually happened then you can work out where you are, you can get back on track. The map is scripture. Paul finds himself looking around. Things aren't what uh, he expected them to be necessarily. Uh, and something's not right. How can they not see? You know, how can this be happening? There's something wrong. What about the promises to Israel? God's word can't fail, but it doesn't feel like that right now. And so uh, he goes back. goes back to the beginning. In uh, verse 6, it's not as though God's word has failed. He goes back to the line of Israel, all the way back to Abraham, and he makes this claim. 
not all who were descended from Israel down the line of Abraham, not all who were children of Abraham are the children of the promises. And he shows us. Uh, it was stated, he writes, that at the appointed time, I'll return and Sarah will have a son. So Abraham uh, and his wife Sarah couldn't have children. This is the story way back in Genesis 12. They couldn't have children. Uh, and God took Abraham and he said, look at the stars. Look at the countless stars. That is going to be your descendants. And that's going to be my people. And so Abraham will have many descendants. Um, and this is how the promise was stated at the appointed time, our return. And Sarah will have a son. Uh, now, you might remember that shortly after that, or oh, I don't know how many long after that, actually, but Abraham and Sarah, uh, they had a bit of a nightmare where Abraham decided, uh, or well, they decided together, sort of, that they take, it was taking a bit too long, they take it upon themselves to fulfill this promise. And Abraham took Sarah's maid to bed with him and had a child, Ishmael. But Ishmael wasn't a child of the promise. It was Isaac, with whom he later had with Sarah, who was chosen according to what God had promised. And so not all who had ascended from Abraham are necessarily children of the promise. But someone comes back to Paul and says, well, you know, you can't really use that as an example. I mean, Abraham kind of messed it up, and so did Sarah, and then it kind of went right. So Paul goes on, he says, okay, not only that, look at Rebecca's children, Jacob and Esau. The same father, the same mother, conceived at exactly the same time, twins in the womb. But before they'd done anything good or bad, before they had any moral standing at all, in a completely unconditional way, so that God's purpose in election might stand, so that his purpose, his promises might reach their fulfillment, he said the older will serve the younger. Whereas Jacob went on in the promise line, Esau's family retreated into insignificance. It's not all of Abraham's natural children that are God's, but it's the children of the promise who are considered Abraham's offspring. Those chosen to fulfill his purposes and show him faithful to his promises. That's Paul's claim. Does that mean that God is unjust? Do you notice how Paul guesses what we're thinking? Uh, because he's thought every which way about this, I'm sure, in his anguish. And no, he says, uh, because God says to Moses, just after that incident with the golden calf, if you know it, he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. And that's uh, verse 15. Paul has shown God's word to have not failed here. But has he just dug himself a bit of a deeper hole uh, of showing God to be unjust, of tainting his righteousness? And that's what we're going to address here in the next uh, little section. Not at all, he writes, for God says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. Uh, the initial question to ask, I think, is does this make sense on its own in the passage? Or does it need a bit of Old Testament context? It's from Exodus. Uh, and I think a bit of both in my reading. Uh, it's absolutely right on its own. God does have mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion, but it's still slightly mysterious, isn't it, uh, to what exactly Paul is saying. 
uh, that we can gain something by looking at Exodus. Uh, and so I'll do that now. We've had the, uh, the bad incident of the golden calf in chapter 32. Uh, you can flick to it if you want, but I'm sort of planned rushing here. Um, so I'll try and nutshell it. Chapter 32, the golden calf. Uh, Moses is up the mountain at this point, up Mount Sinai, and he's receiving the law from God in the tablets. Uh, and God says to him, you know what the people are doing. They are, they've built a golden calf. Uh, and Aaron has said, look, the golden calf, which brought you out of Egypt. Isn't it wonderful? Let's worship it. And God's furious. And he says, I'm going to, this time, it's, I'm, they're done for. And Moses says, he runs back down the mountain, he gets them, he's furious, he smashes the tablets on the calf, and he throws it on the fire, and then he grinds it down, he gets them to eat it, it's terrible. And then he says, I've got to go back up the mountain, I've got a plea for you, um, I've got to try and avert God's righteous wrath on you. This is how serious this is, and he goes back up, and he talks to God, and he says, please don't destroy them, because you've just taken them out of Egypt, um, the glorious rescue only for them to die in the desert. You'll look bad. You'll look like an evil tyrant. He says, come with us. Stay with us. Go up to the promised land with us. And God says, I won't destroy them, but I'm not going to go to the promised land with you. I will probably, I might consume them in my anger. I'll send an angel instead. Uh, Moses isn't really content with this. So he intercedes with God again. He says, come to the promised land with us. And then he says, and let me see your glory. What we're getting here is that Moses doesn't just want God to relent of his anger. He wants God to restore the people to his full favor. He must know what an ask that is in the current scenario. And so he has to see God's glory. It's not a mystical side preference on his personal part as a kind of add-on. Um, but actually, knowing the deep nature of God to be merciful and astonishingly willing uh, to, to favor a stiff-necked, rebellious people, he asks him, let me see your glory. Let me see who you are. And I think that's what we are in our heart of hearts. We're rebellious Left on our own, we'd never choose God. It's like the shepherd who has to go after his sheep who walks away. We would never choose him. He has mercy on us. How glorious is that? How wonderful. What a privilege. And so in response to Moses asking to see his glory, God says, yes, I will have my goodness pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, Yahweh. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Uh, that language might uh, ring bells. Back to the start of Exodus, it's sort of similar. I am who I am, he says, when Moses, Moses says, who shall I say you are? And he says, I am who I am. And then here we have, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. I don't know if you can see what ha- what's sort of happening. He, This is who I am, says God. This is my name. I'll proclaim my name Yahweh, and this is what I'll do because of who I am. And um, keep that image of God's name in your mind uh, as as we move on to the next verse in Romans 9. 
16, verse 16, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. Out of all the passages that Paul could have picked here from Exodus about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, he picks the passage that talks about God's name. It says, I'll proclaim uh, my name in all the earth. This is the point. Uh, Paul uses that, that bit about his name again. In this instance, it's not mercy, it's hardening. And this is the point. God's glory and his essential nature is to mainly give mercy and grace and to give them freely in his sovereignty as he chooses. He may also harden hearts. He's God. There are no constraints on him. There's no, he's not bound by any obligation. He acts out of his name, his merciful and glorious nature. So no, he's not unjust. And then lastly... Uh, the final and I think most difficult objection in this passage. Verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? Why does he still blame us? If he has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens who he hardens, how can I be responsible or accountable for my, for my sin or for my future or how, how can he still blame us? And Paul has, Paul has no problem when someone tries to understand God, who he is, why he does what he does, hard as that can be sometimes. He's spent much of his life doing that. But he does massively object uh, when they reject and criticize the truth that they discover, as we see here. Uh, and this little objection isn't sort of saying, I don't understand, how can that be? What's, what's going on? Uh, it's actually slightly aggressive and critical. God's not doing this right. How is this fair? And, and so we get to verse 20. Who are you, old man, to talk back to God? To say to him, shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? The image of the clay and the potter, I think, is, for me, the pinnacle of this section. It's an image that's been close to Israel throughout lots of its history. Its roots are in Isaiah. Uh, God says in Isaiah, literally, the, the quote, you turn things upside down. You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be the clay. The whole of the Bible shows us this tipsy-turvy relationship, doesn't it? Uh, Adam and Eve, in the beginning, what was their sin? They wanted to be like gods. Uh, Abraham tried to fulfill God's promises on his own, and he took Sarah's maid to bed with him. What did David do at the height of the powerful kingship that God had given him? He, uh, he ordered that Bathsheba be brought to him. And in our lives, how often do we find ourselves just drifting into that place where we become the potter? My life's mine to live. I can do what I want with it. I know how things should really be. I've got my own ideas. God to the side. 
I don't like this bit of scripture. I just ditch it. I mentioned David's adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband to try and cover it up. Well, David had a kid who grew up to be the great and wise King Solomon. You know who Solomon's mum was? Bathsheba. Even when we are unfaithful, God is faithful. When we prove to be rebellious and arrogant, he works through it to bring a greater and more glorious work of rescue and redemption. You might know where David and Solomon's line leads down to, to Jesus. God has mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion and not without cost to him. Even when we prove false, God is faithful to his promises all the way to the cross. All the way to the cross. How glorious and lovely he is. Romans 9 to 11 aren't easy. You might still have some issues with it. But whatever you do, don't throw it out. Try and work it out bit by bit because it's gospel ground. It means we can look at Romans 8, those beautiful promises. He will not hold anything good back from us. Nothing can separate us from his love. We can know that God's promises will never fail. We can stand on them eternally because his name is powerfully sovereign. His glory is merciful and gracious. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that even when we are unfaithful, you remain faithful all the way to the cross. Lord, may your sovereignty turn us to worship you more, to trust in you, to trust in your promises more and base our life on them. May it help us to know your love more deeply, love you more and love your people more. Amen.